We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, as I mentioned, today, uh, um, churches around the world and us here this morning are celebrating uh, what we call the, the Protestant Reformation, Lutheran Reformation, where we, we look specifically at um, what does it mean to make a clear testimony of Christ, and specifically Jesus' grace, in a world that so often is opposed to it. Uh, and so today, that's really what we want to look at. We're going to look at uh, um, kind of power dynamics um, and ultimately the freedom um, that we find in no other place um, than the gospel and Jesus Christ. So that's kind of where we're headed this morning. Um, today, we're going to talk about Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, but we're going to start out just a little bit with um, that image or that concept of a lion. Um, um, do any of you have lions sitting out at the end of your driveway on either side of it? Stone or iron lions? No? Okay. All right. Um, I remember I was in college and uh, uh, my father-in-law, uh, um, he had this idea that he wanted, he wanted two kind of like um, copper or bronze lions that were going to be on either side of his driveway, right? And so uh, I helped him put them out. They were not light because, of course, lions can't be light, right? Uh, and we put these out. And, and I remember almost at the time thinking, I, like, what's, what's kind of the, the purpose of these lions? Um, and then I, I found out the purpose of the lions. Um, the purpose was when it snowed and you were trying to back out his long driveway with a sharp curve. Um, Sometimes people would run into the lions, right? So um, in, in a sense, he wanted them there as decoration, um, but in a lot of ways, um, those bronze lions, to some degree, kept us teenagers and college students um, on the straight and narrow uh, of that driveway, right? Um, but I think those images of lions, that's not something foreign to just him. Uh, maybe none of you have that outside of your driveways. Uh, but those images of lion, uh, lions kind of throughout history have been one of, of, of kind of twofold. One of strength, um, but also to kind of keep people in line. So if you look at uh, uh, flags, if you look at coat of arms, if you look at um, kind of crests for nations throughout history, um, you will see more and more lions than you, you ever thought you would. Um, because we, we get that, don't we? Lions are the king of the jungle. Um, they are meant to evoke um, both fear and respect, majesty, uh, a kind of significance within our world, and ultimately in some ways to kind of keep us in line. Late 1700s, um, actually, 1790, in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, uh, in the city of Babylon, um, they discovered this. And now this is a little bit hard to see because this is a, a photo from uh, actually probably the, the 1900s of it. Um, this is called the Lion of Babylon. Okay. Um, maybe some of you have heard, it, heard of it. Um, it doesn't look that significant right here. But what they found in the city of Babylon uh, was this carved lion, this statue, um, and they date it back, interestingly enough, to almost the exact same time of our, as our text from Daniel here today. Um, many believe that King Nebuchadnezzar had this lion commissioned. It was a part of the city of Babylon. It was the New York City. It was the, the center of the populated world, and it was the largest uh, nation at that time. And in that nation, in that city, and at the heart of it, Nebuchadnezzar had this lion commissioned. 
And we kind of get why, don't we? Once again, majesty, strength, and on some level, uh, to instill a little bit of fear and keep people in line. Uh, this is the lion here today. Um, after the, the war in Iraq and things like that, it had kind of fallen into disrepair. Um, so they created a fund and they started to kind of repair the base and things like that. Um, this is what it looks like here today. Now, what you can't see maybe really very well because of the, the kind of degradation of the lion over the ages, um, you can see the shape of the lion. But if you look real closely, do you notice that there's something at the base of it? Yeah, it's actually a person. Yeah, yeah. So what was Nebuchadnezzar's point? If you were coming to Babylon and you saw this statue, don't step out of line, right? A lion standing on top of a person was a clear testimony from Nebuchadnezzar and that, that, that government, right? Um, this is how we roll. This is how, what we expect, Right? We rule by might, we rule by strength, and if necessary, we rule by fear. So that lion itself may very well have been on the scene in the city of Babylon at the moment that our text takes place today with Daniel. It colors a little bit about what we're going to talk about today as Daniel is thrown into a lion's den, right? This was not theoretical. This was not uh, um, simply a story to scare your children or your enemies. But this was a reality in Babylon. They were a, a world power for a reason, because they ruled by might and, if necessary, by fear. I don't know how you and I would maybe choose to die, but being thrown into a lion's den would not be high on my list. Right? Today, that's what we see. Right? We see Daniel's reaction, um, his proclamation in the face of death, in the face of lions. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at today kind of as we go through and what we're going to focus on on this Reformation Sunday as we talk about what does it mean for us to make um, clear, faithful testimonies of who Christ is and most specifically, his gospel. So if you want to follow along today, you're welcome to. These are kind of the three points I want us to pull apart from our text. Um, we're going to, our theme is life and lions. We'll talk about uh, what does it look like to have life among lions, um, a life for lions, and ultimately life with the lion. Right? So that's kind of where we're headed. Context for our text today uh, takes place, as I mentioned, in Babylon. So in the main city of Babylon, um, Daniel is an interesting character within our text because um, he spanned kind of a, um, lots of change that had happened within the Middle East at the time. If you see the map here, uh, you can see the Persian Empire to the right, uh, Babylonian Empire kind of in the middle there. Um, Daniel's an interesting character in the Bible because um, as a youth, uh, we estimate probably in his 20s, um, Israel was actually conquered, or specifically Jerusalem, and the southern two tribes of Judah were conquered by Babylon. Now, I mentioned Babylon was the world power at the time, um, and it was because they were good at it. They were good at subjugating other people. So one of their military tactics was um, they would conquer a nation, especially if they were a troublesome nation, right? Uh, they would conquer a nation, and the first thing they would do is they'd round up what they considered all the best and brightest from the community, okay? 
So uh, young men, young women, those who had, had intellect, those who had skill, those who had strength, all of those that they would say uh, were the, 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 the kind of up and coming and had value in, at least in the eyes of the Babylonians. They would grab all of them and they would ship them back to Babylon, to their home country. Okay? What would they do when they brought them there? They wouldn't just put them in jails and let them rot. They actually would employ them, right? They would say, now you are going to work for us. Now you're going to work for the nation that conquered you. Now you're going to work for your oppressors and for the good of this country rather than your own. Daniel was one of those. Uh, One of the first, um, um, what we would call deportations from Jerusalem and the southern tribes of Judah, Daniel was one of the first groups that was taken away. Um, Young, able, smart, um, um, was put to work in the Babylonian Empire. So that's how Daniel's life began as a young man. Okay? At the point of our text here today, we estimate that Daniel's probably about 80 years old. Okay? So that entire middle time, he had been working for the good of the country that had conquered him. He had been working for the good of a king that had dragged him out of his home city and his homeland uh, and the, his place of worship um, that entire time. And so what's fascinating with Daniel is that we see both the beginning of his life in Babylon, but also the end of it. And he actually spanned two different empires. So not just the Babylonian Empire, but eventually the Persian Empire, which is what takes place at the point of our text here today, um, conquers Babylon and takes over as well. So Daniel and our text here today, um, think of it this way. This is not a young man standing up to the Babylonian king or the Persian king at the time. This is not a young man with all kinds of life ahead of him and all kinds of vigor within him. The point of our text here today, this is an old man, 80 years or older, and yet he stands in the face of the king as he had done the entire rest of his life. And so it's an amazing story of confession in the face of what looked like certain death. So let's jump into our text this morning. Uh, You're welcome to follow along with me if you would like. Uh, I'll have the the words on the screen as well. So we're going to read verses 3 and 4. It says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Okay. This is who Daniel is and who Daniel had been in his entire life and and service to the Babylonian and now Persian Empire. Um, How many of you in here get paid for full-time work in the church? Yeah, I kind of thought that would be it. I just, once in a while, we have other pastors that pop in here, right? So here's why I ask you that question. Because you are no different than Daniel. He was working in a secular job in a secular world, right? 
Um, he was using the gifts God had given him. So this was not a, a, a pastor or a priest that was uh, like, me, like myself as your pastor, working with all of God's people on a daily basis. Like the privilege I get to be able to work with all of you, with believers, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, our text today with Daniel, it was not that. It was you. He was you. Working in, in, in fields and vocations all over the map, Right? That's what Daniel was doing. And specifically, Daniel was, put it bluntly, was a bureaucrat, <laughs> right? He worked in government. And what does our text say about Daniel? Uh, he was good at it, right? He was good at the job that he had done. In fact, up to this point, and think of that, he's already 80 years old. You would think if, if, if enemies were going to find dirt on Daniel, they would have had lots of time to do so. And yet, what does our text say about him? They couldn't find anything. What does that tell you about how Daniel went about his daily work within the country and for the king that had pulled him from his homeland? They could find no corruption in him, right? No fault that they could hold against him. In fact, kind of three things that we point out from that. Uh, Number one was he was trustworthy. Um, That could also be translated as faithful, right? So when you asked him to do something, he would do it, right? He would follow through on the things uh, that were expected of him. So the first thing was he was trustworthy. Second thing is that he was not corrupt. And we think, oh yeah, none of us want to be corrupt. Did I mention he was a bureaucrat in the government his entire life? Okay, I don't want to cast any aspersions, right? But, uh, but, but he, was, he was not corrupt. He worked in politics. He was a bureaucrat. He worked for the king. Like if anyone could have been corrupt, if anyone could have used their position for their own good or the good of his family or the people around him, he could have. And yet, they couldn't find anything. No dirt on him, right? Nothing that they could blackmail him with and hold over his head. And the last one was he wasn't negligent either. So you get this idea that he was faithful and did what he said, but he also wasn't negligent, right? So he didn't just leave things to be. If there were things to be done, he would follow up on it. Um, he, didn't, he didn't step aside and say, not my responsibility, not my time, I'm not going to get involved. In fact, not being negligent gives us the idea that, that Daniel, in, in, in kind of a, a strange way, had ownership of not only who he was, but also the tasks that were put in front of him. Now... All of that is beautiful and amazing, but again, remember who he was working for. This was an unbelieving, godless country that had conquered him. Now he was being forced to work on their behalf. And so the better he did his job, guess who benefited from it? Yeah, the government and the king that had conquered him. How much motivation do you think you would have if you were in that position? It'd be hard. Wouldn't it? How often do you think Daniel had to swallow his own words and his own thoughts and his own actions in order to have a reputation like that within the Babylonian Empire? Probably pretty often, right? How hard would it have been to work for the good of the nation that had conquered him? I think pretty difficult, right? And yet, this was his reputation, right? This was his reputation. Okay, let's keep going. Next few verses. It says, now, da- now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. 
Three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Okay, now we kind of are splitting here. So um, the first section, we kind of talked about Daniel's job in his secular life, in his vocation, in the job that he had been given, right? Um, But after the decree had been made and uh, um, he was going to be sentenced to death and he was going to be thrown into the lion's den, then we switch a little bit from his secular job, his vocation, his work, right? Now we get a glimpse of what does a spiritual life look like? And immediately, what do we see that Daniel did? Well, kind of three different things, right? So in his secular life, he was upright, he was trustworthy, he was above reproach. In his sacred life, in his spiritual life, first thing is, it was public. He did not hide who he was. He did not hide his faith from those that he knew were persecuting him. The windows were opened. They knew what he would be doing because he had been doing it all the way up to age 80, right? And so his faith was not merely a private thing. It was remarkably public, okay? Second thing is, it says that he prayed and gave thanks. Now, this one's a little bit interesting in the Hebrew. Um, when the satraps um, set their trap for Daniel, um, they know that he's going to be who Daniel is. They know that he's going to do the things that he was going to do. Um, so they use a Hebrew word for, uh, for prayer, right, or bowing down. But it, it's actually a different word than what Daniel uses here. Theirs is kind of more of a, a general word of supplication. So um, they use it kind of in the idea of like, you will, you will go to your God and ask him for things, right? And this was pretty common within the Babylonian empire and in fact nations throughout. Like, um, why, what use are the gods for us? Well, give me some good things, right? I need a job, right? I could use some money. Save us from the Babylonians, Right? So that, that was often in, in the, the, the Far East, Middle East, that was the view of the gods above. Right? And if they were uh, in a good mood, maybe they'd, they'd, they'd throw some good things your way. Maybe your crops would be watered and you wouldn't have famine or drought that year. But if not, if they were angry with you, uh, no good things are coming. And so when the satraps used that word pray, when they set the trap for Daniel, they assume that he prays to his God in a way that asks God for things like a spiritual vending machine, right? I'll put in this quarter and that quarter, I'll pull the right lever and maybe a candy bar drops out, right? They assume that is Daniel's relationship with his God above. What's fascinating is when Daniel goes and prays, he uses a different Hebrew word and it's actually not for supplication. It's not a prayer of asking God for something. Not that that's always wrong, right? We ask God, we, we, we open our hearts to our God above and we ask him to be with us. But what's fascinating is um, Daniel doesn't ask his God for anything. What do you think Daniel might have been tempted to ask of his God right after he was sentenced to death in a lion's den? There you go. That would probably be a pretty good, like on your prayer request card, um, save me from the lions, right? Say, okay, and, and, and maybe that was a part of his extended prayers, right? Maybe that was in there, but uh, the text that we have here is, what does he actually do? He's not actually asking his God to save him. 
He is giving God um, praise and thanksgiving for all the things God has already done for him. He is simply extolling God's faithfulness as he had done his entire life and his entire uh, um, um, vocational life up to that point. And so you see, even on the surface, how the satraps and rulers think God's work is vastly different than how God actually works and how Daniel approaches his God. He gives him thanks and praise. In a sense, lays himself at the foot of his God above. Okay? So, Daniel, in Babylon, right, we see both the sacred and the secular. Right? And we see how he handled himself. How about you and I? How do we handle those aspects of our life and living? I think it's a good question for us to ask of ourselves. Because here's the thing. I don't know that our world, the nation that we live in, the culture that we exist in, is all that different maybe than the Babylonian culture at that time. If we, if we want an example, if we want uh, um, to see how someone can live a life of faith in an unbelieving, godless, pagan culture and society, we don't have to look any further than Daniel. And what's remarkable is, is, is how he lived that life. Not only the length of it, but how he testified about his God above and how God used him ultimately for the good of, of many around him. Right? Do we see ourselves in that way? Maybe, maybe not. Right? I think sometimes maybe we separate our vocation, our secular life from our spiritual life, right? Um, sometimes those are even accusations of us as believers, right? They go out in the snow on a Sunday morning, uh, but on their drive home, they have road rage just like anyone else, <laughs> right? They sit in church on a Sunday morning, but on Monday, when you got to get into work, when you got to uh, accomplish what you are expected to do, these Christians act no differently than anyone else around them. I think there's temptation for us in that, isn't there? That somehow we can separate who we are in our work lives and in the world around us versus who we are in our spiritual lives, quite often we feel is remarkably private. But we don't see that in Daniel, do we? Right? And that doesn't mean that it's necessarily easy. Think of how difficult it was for him to work in that bureaucracy throughout his life. It was not easy. In fact, I'd venture to say it was probably as difficult as it is for you. As you work, as you, you um, seek to give your God glory and honor through the things that you do, through the gifts that God's given you, it isn't easy. Right? But ultimately, Daniel's a beautiful example of living as, a, as a, a person of God, as a man or woman of God, in a culture and in a world that is drastically opposed to it. I think maybe too often, we kind of fall short of that, right? And to be honest, if it's just based on our own motivation or our own efforts, there's not a lot of hope for us. But here's the amazing thing about Daniel. Um, there was clearly something driving him that was different than what the satraps would have thought, right? Something was driving how he acted on a daily basis in his secular life and his sacred life. That 
the motivation is the same motivation we have, right? Which brings us to our next point here, a life four lines. Let's read verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Okay? It's an interesting story. Um, do, do, you, do you kind of have a soft spot for King Darius in the story? You can be honest. Like, every, like, usually when I read the story of Daniel, like, I don't know, kind of have a soft spot for Darius. Like, you kind of feel like, oh, this poor king, he just got duped by his, by his satraps and stuff, right? And then uh, um, he, he had to put to death someone that was near and dear to him. And, and I think we kind of, we almost have this little, a little bit, or maybe we empathize with Darius just a little bit and say, oh, you just kind of got stuck in the middle and this is somebody that you love and now you got to throw him into the lion's den. And actually in our text, you actually see um, that, that Darius did care for Daniel and wanted to help him. And in fact, uh, um, um, didn't want Daniel to die. And yet, did Darius do everything he could to save Daniel from the lion's den? The answer is no, <laughs> right? The answer is no, right? Uh, um, a decree had been made according to the law, per, law of the um, uh, Medes and Persians, so you, you were not able to repeal that, but certainly the king of the Medes and Persians could have made an addendum, <laughs> could have tweaked things, right? Uh, um, could have carved out an exception for those that were in certain positions within his government that he loved, that he wanted to protect. There were lots of ways that King Darius could have saved Daniel, and yet he didn't. And maybe you're thinking, nah, I don't think Darius would, would break the law. I don't think he probably could have carved out a spot for Daniel. There's one other way that Darius could have saved Daniel. You want to know how? He could have chosen to go into the pit. He could have said, I'll take Daniel's spot in the lion's den. But did he? No. Of course not. Because what king would do that? No one would do that. If you're in a position of authority and power, why in the world would you put your life on the line for someone else? No king in their right mind would do that. Except yours did. Right? Except yours did. Jesus Christ, as we stand before lions, the brokenness, the sin, the pain and sorrow that enwraps, that wraps our lives in the world in which we live, our God, your God above, said, I'll step into the lion's den for them, for you. I'll put myself in harm's way so that they will know and you will know that you are loved and you are forgiven forever. So we ask ourselves a little bit about what was the motivation for Daniel to live in such a way in a culture and in a world. It was faith in the promise and of a faithful God and that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he gave his life on the cross for you and for all people. What king in his right mind would step willingly into death your king did. Jesus gave his life for you so that you would know that your sins are forgiven. So Daniel was not motivated to act like this, to do these things, to make these choices because God was, was hammering him with the law. 
Daniel was motivated to do and make these choices and act in this way because he knew how much his God loved him. That his God above was faithful and was just. And whether he came out of that lion's den or didn't, God would love him beyond all things. Brothers and sisters, you know the very same thing. In Christ, you, you see the results of sin. You see your king step into the lion's den, be torn apart by sin, sins of all mankind, abandonment by his God, and ultimately death on that cross. Right? I've never been thrown in a lion's den. Uh, I don't think you have either. But I would guess this. Um, um, looking into the lion's den is a far dis- different view than I think if, when you're being lifted from the lion's den. Right? Here's the beauty of the gospel and Christ for you. Christ went in so that we would be able to leave and look out. Right? Not into the darkness, but into the light that we have and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Christ went into the tomb so that we would know uh, that that tomb is empty and we would see the light of day and forgiveness that we have in him. That's what motivated Daniel to live a, a, a life that was upright in the eyes of Babylonians, but most importantly, in the eyes of his God above. He knew he had a God that was faithful. Okay? Jesus stepped into that den. Verse 22, or Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Roaring lions that tear their prey, prey open their mouths wide against me. Psalm 22 comes just before Psalm 23, where we walk through the valley of shadow of death. We cannot walk through the valley of the shadow of death with our Lord at our side without understanding that he was torn to pieces because of our sin at that cross. Romans 3.20 says it a little more clearly. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testified. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The freedom that we have is not, not, it does not come from, from somehow trying to, to satisfy the demands of an angry God above us. It's knowing that that satisfaction has been made in Jesus Christ. That sin has been paid for. Your righteousness does not come from the things you do, what you say, or how you act, but from Christ. You are clothed in His righteousness because of His sacrifice for you. That changes how you view the culture in which you live, your work, and actually every aspect of your life. See, we're able to view it from a place of joy rather than demand. Today we celebrate the Lutheran Reformation, Protestant Reformation. A man named Martin Luther found that out as well. Actually, these words are the ones that turned his heart. He had worked as hard as he could to meet the demands of what he thought his God wanted. So much so, um, his dad wanted him to become a lawyer. Uh, he decided not to do that, decided to enter a monastery, and he was good at it. 
But the more he tried to satisfy God and his demands, the further he, let, he moved away from the peace that God actually had intended for him. Because he could never find the end of that road. He was never good enough, never perfect enough, never right enough. And when he read Romans, he realized it wasn't based on him at all, but solely on Jesus Christ. This is his reaction after he saw those words. He says, Now I felt exactly as though I had been born again, and I believed that I had entered paradise through widely opened doors. Not a view of entering the lion's den, but a view and a heart exiting. (laughs) And he found that exit in Christ and the grace we have in him, right? What does that mean for us? Well, we get to live with the lion. Verse 21 and 22. Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Going in, Daniel didn't know and was not assured that he would be rescued from the lion's den. But what he had no doubt in was the love and faithfulness of his God above. In this instance, it resulted in Daniel being saved, right? The same is true for you and I. And guess what? Now we get to live our lives not in fear of the lion, but with the lion at our side. book of Revelation says this, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed. So as we live our lives, as you live your life, it does not mean that things are easy. And yet who walks at our side? Nothing short of your Lord and Savior and the lion of Judah. I mentioned that lion, uh, the lion of Babylon uh, at the beginning. Um, in Babylon, at the time of Daniel, um, there was a, what they called the processional way. It was about nine uh, football fields long. And, and this processional way is where, where um, all of the official decrees would take place. They would have parades down that way. Uh, at the end of it was something called the Ishtar Gate. Okay, this is a picture of it here. Um, what is fascinating is um, the processional way and the Ishtar Gate um, may actually have been one of the projects that Daniel worked on as a bureaucrat. It was built during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So there is a good chance that Daniel was hiring the artisans to create not only the Ishtar Gate, but the processional way. Um, that processional way and even the Ishtar Gate had images on it. As you walked along that path, as you, you, you moved towards the glory of what was ancient Babylon, you were flanked on the right and on the left by, guess what? Lions, right? 60 lions on one side, 60 lions on the other. What was the point? Fear, respect, majesty, and don't step out of line because the Babylonians are here, right? 60 lions as you moved towards that Ishtar gate. Today, guess where the lions and the Ishtar gate are? There you go, Berlin. If any of you have ever done any traveling, the entire Ishtar gate was dismantled and reset up in Berlin. The lions, 120 of them, 
Some are in Berlin, some are in China, some are in India, some are in different museums all over the world. What's the point? The Babylonian Empire did not last forever. And for as powerful and mighty as they thought they were, and for as fearsome as the lions were meant to be as you walked that path, they do not exist any longer. But your Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, still does. The God that Daniel bowed down to and prayed to is your God. And that God gave his life on the cross for your sins. And so nations will rise and nations will fall and they will use the the, the images that they choose. But the only one that lasts is your God above. I pray that leads us as we make our confession in our lives, right? Wars, rumors of wars, difficulty, struggle, pain, all of that that we see every single day And yet in the midst of it all, that line of Judah, Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, walks with you. Pray that we have opportunities to clearly share that grace, that line of Judah, and most importantly, sins forgiven that we have in no other place than Jesus as our Lord. Amen.